0: You can have a seat. Welcome in to our 1045 service on this Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day uh, from me. I know Will's already said it. Jeremiah said it. Now I'm saying it. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, Man, we are so thankful uh, for all the mothers out there. I know that you are as well. I am thankful for the example of my mother that provided a legacy of faith. I'm thankful for every morning that I came down those stairs And saw her sitting in her little recliner glider thing and uh, reading a psalm, uh, reading a proverb, and spending time on her knees in prayer. Uh, Man, just the impact of that is is huge. I know for some of you, that Mother's Day is is a difficult time. I know some of you may have experienced the loss of a mother or a wife or. Uh, something like that. And so to you, we, we want you to know that we our heart goes out to you as well. But I do believe it's fitting uh, that we honor mothers and honor the legacy that they leave. I'm thankful to be living in a home with uh, my wife, who is a mother to our children that is discipling. She's got a shirt that I really like. It says, Raising Tiny Disciples. And uh, I love the intentionality in which she leads in that way. And so Uh, that's exactly the the mentality that God has called us uh, to live in. I'm thankful for what God's doing in our women's ministry. I I know we don't say that enough, but man, uh, Kathy Gentry, who's leading our women's ministry, does such a fantastic job. Her and Becca were up here late last night. Uh, getting all of the gifts and everything, the the little photo booth area and all that stuff ready. So make sure you take advantage of that. And we've got a gift for any mom that is in here uh, today. We've got a gift for you expecting mothers as well. And so we would, uh, which we've got a lot of those, a whole lot of those right now in our church. Uh, and so we're preparing for church growth that way as well, uh, which is nice. Uh, but uh, but anyway, uh, I'm just, I'm thankful for that. I Man, God's moving in their Bible studies that they're doing, the IF gathering, if some of you ladies were a part of Man, God did a work there as well, Uh, and so we're just we're just excited about that. Men, we need to answer that call, right? And we've got an opportunity for you to plug in. It's super spiritual. It's a shrimp and crawfish bowl, all right? So we want you to plug into that. I promise you, it's this Saturday. uh, You'll see the announcement, but please sign up. Even if you don't have your $20, I promise you that is a steal with seafood prices the way they are right now. Uh, We wanted to make it as cheap as humanly possible. It's going to be a great time for us just to fellowship, to hang out. If you don't like crawfish, we got shrimp and sausage. It's going to be great, all right? So we want you to be there. Uh, Bring your sons. My kids will be there. Um, bring bring your kids, your boys, and, and man, we would love to just let you know a little bit about what's going on in our men's ministry, but just get every, all the men together, get them worshiping together. Um, a lot of times we feel like, you know, ladies and men alike, we feel like we have two different churches because we meet at two different times. I know that there's some carryover and things like that, but a lot of times we don't get to see uh, that, that other group that meets earlier, and so man, that's just a good opportunity for us to get in the same place, have a good time, we'll have cornhole and games it'll be a blast so want you to join us for that you'll get more information on that if you want to help prepare some of the food uh, we need some of those things as well but uh, before you ladies men we are so very thankful and I'm gonna be honest with you as I was studying for this series I thought about when I wanted to start and I thought about when I wanted to end and what I wanted to bring up, but I did not necessarily look at all the occasions and as they fell in the life of David. Uh, And so today, uh, for Mother's Day, we're celebrating Mother's Day, and I am preaching on David and his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, So, you know, in retrospect, looking back, maybe that could have been, like, you know, organized a little different, Uh, but uh, that is where we are Today, like, nothing like David's battle with sin to give the Good Mother's Day (laughs) message. uh, Or maybe y'all need that. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so if you got your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we are, we've talked about David's battle with God's timing and patience. We've talked about his battle with Goliath, his battle with King Saul, his fight for the presence of God. And how hungry he was for the presence of God in his life. But today we will talk about his battle with sin. And because there's not a perfect mom in here, there's not a perfect dad in here, there's not a perfect son or daughter in here, we all can relate to this idea of wrestling with the sin in our life. Here's what I would tell you. I hope you are wrestling with the sin in your life. There are times that I will meet with people... I remember this one teenager that told me, man, I'm just struggling. And then the next week he met with me, man, I'm just struggling. And, and, you know, a year goes by and he's still struggling. And part of me, just I finally just told him, I was like, man, hey, listen, let me ask you something. Are you really struggling or is this just something you're telling your pastor? Like, is there really a struggle in your life or are you have you just come to the conclusion that it's going to be what it's going to be in your life, right? Like, are we making provision for our flesh or have we cut off our flesh, are we? Are we doing away with it, right? And so, and so, all of us understand this battle. Even David, a man after God's own heart, a man who was willing to do all that God wills in his life, struggled with sin. And when David went down, David fell hard. The he, when he made mistakes, he made them on the grandest. Of scales, right? And so let's look first at the, uh, the devolution of into sin. This, this idea of this process of us getting deeper and deeper and deeper in sin. What we need to know about the context of the time. David is now on the throne, he is King David. He has succeeded uh, King Saul, and he is leading a military campaign against the Ammonites. The Ammonites were a a power that were in place that had caused a lot of friction between the people of God and themselves. And so David had already led a successful military campaign against them. The winter has come. They withdrew from battle, as was the case in much of the wars of antiquity, right? During the cold months, they would just shelter in place or they would camp or they would go back. Uh, And then they would come out again in the spring. And so the spring is where we find the context of 2 Samuel chapter 11. But look where King Saul is. He is not leading his armies. He is at home. In the spring of the year, when the time the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, this is the commander of his army, and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. All right? David remained in Jerusalem. Cue number one that something may not be exactly right. Verse two, and it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. He was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw the roof of a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent, and he inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, "Uh Uh-oh. I am pregnant. Right? So David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And, uh, let's see, I just lost my... There it is. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. He's making... This is funny to me. Like, hey, champ... How's it going? How's your mom and them? How's the army? Like, good to see. A lovely weather we're having, right? Like, he's making light conversation with him. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Go home, right? Go home. Spend some time with your wife. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. Right? Like, job well done. Kudos to you and all your hard work. Here's a present. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David this, go down, uh, when he, he, they told David this, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have not you come from a long journey? Why would you not go down to your house? Come on, man. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in Booth. And my Lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and your soul lives, I will not do this thing. It's interesting to me, we talked about the presence of God and how passionate David was for the presence of God. Literally saying things like Uriah said. Dude, the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. The job of the conquest is not done. I would rather sleep... On your doorstep, protecting you, protecting the presence of God, protecting the king, than I would to go into my own home. Right? How far David had fallen that Uriah is having to preach to him a gospel. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in the presence, in his presence, and drank. So that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. Dad, gum it. What does David got to do to get Uriah to his wife, right? Like, how can I cover this thing up? How can I cover this sin up? I'm trying to get you to go home, go home, be with your wife. Like, come on, man. Even drunk Uriah is more. Moral than where David is at this time. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah, without knowing, and obviously loyal to a fault, carrying his own death warrant to the man who would would give the order to kill him. And in the letter he wrote, send Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Man. In this series, there has been a lot of positive things said about David. A lot of good things and examples for us to follow. But in 2 Samuel 11, David is a punk. He is a tool, man, like he is not a good guy. A man who is described as a man after God's own heart is really doing some terrible things. The first thing we see is David was lazy, right? He had led this military campaign, didn't feel like getting out in the spring and just decided I'm going to hang back. He got comfortable. He got lazy, though kings are to lead their men to battle. David, by the way, taking a cue from King Saul, is not in the battle. He's in his palace, enjoying all the comforts that being a king would provide. David had become lazy. This is the first thing we see where he had become amiss. This first circle, this first uh, disintegration of his morals. Secondly, we see that David was filled with lust, right? He was where he didn't need to be, and now his eyes were focused where they didn't need to be. They were focused on another man's wife, and he lusted after her. Thirdly, David was prideful. Now, to understand what I mean when I say he was prideful, you need to understand what was the custom of the day. In pagan cultures, In ancient times, like David was in, it was no big deal for a king to come and take your woman. If the king wanted them, the king got them. Listen, Artaxerxes got every beautiful maiden from the entire land of Persia and assembled them all together and got his pick of the litter, right? Like, that was how kings did. Hey, if you like the protection that I provide to you as king, then if I think your woman is fine, I'm coming after her. Right? And it's, gonna, it's not this hidden thing, it's a public thing. Like, I'm going to take her because she's mine. David got in his feels a little bit about how, bi- how big and bad he was, and he said, look, just because I'm the king of Israel does not mean that I can't exercise my ability to rule like some of these pagan kings. He got proud, he decided to take what he thought he deserved. Man, you don't need to know anything more about your headspace than know that you deserve something good to know that you're in sin. But he got proud. He got prideful. He committed adultery. Number four is David commits adultery. Right? Now we're getting into the big sins. Right? Like we've got our, okay, like it's not good. Those are bad. Okay, that's a little worse. Now we're talking about stone tablet stuff. Do you remember how hard David fought to get the presence of God in Jerusalem? The Ark of the Covenant. What did the Ark of the Covenant have in it? It had the two stone tablets. It had the Ten Commandments. Now David has, has, has devolved to the point where he is rationalizing, breaking the, one of the Ten Commandments. And he has committed adultery. He's committed adultery. One of the biggies. But that's not where it ends. Again, he has justification for all of this, right? I've made a mistake. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Fifthly, David tried to spin a false narrative. Let's get Uriah back. Hey, Joab, send Uriah home, man. He's been working real hard. Set him up with his wife. Let's pass this off as his kid. He spins a false narrative. Last I checked... Stone tablets, thou shalt not bear false witness. It's there. But he has, in his mind, created this idea. He has postured himself to justify this sinful behavior. And then he comes full circle, and David eventually murders Uriah the Hittite. Gives the orders, hey, and put Uriah on the front lines in the fiercest of battles, and then withdraw and let Uriah die. Clearly, clearly murdering Uriah. We're talking about a man after God's own heart. And he has committed three of the... He has broken three of the Ten Commandments in less than a chapter. How in the world can this be true of this man? It's the process that we go through in our sinfulness as i meet with people and i talk with people they they say things like i don't know how it ever got this bad to which i say i know exactly how it got this bad because you let satan have a little bit because you compromised a little bit satan's end game is not to keep you happy with sin It's not to keep you contented with sin. Satan's end game is to feed it to you over and over and over again. And we'll talk about the disorienting effect that sin has in our life. And before you know it, you have gone to places you never thought possible. And you've justified it in your head as okay. Because you're in sin. Let me tell you this. I don't know what arbitrary lines you think you have drawn in your life. But if you think that you can play with sin and somehow come against a line that you will not cross, my friend, let me tell you, that line does not exist like you think it does. It is the nature of sin to take you further than you want to go to keep you longer than you want to stay and to charge you more than you ever wanted to pay. Satan's end game is to destroy you. He's a liar and the father of lies. And whatever you think line that you wouldn't dare cross, that you'll entertain sin, but you won't cross this line, that is a lie from the enemy. I guarantee you, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 10, if you ask David, David, at the end of the next chapter, you're going to, you're going to murder somebody. I guarantee you, David says, no. I am the man after God's own heart here, people. I would never do anything like that. That's the way that sin gains root in our life. What is absent from this record? Man, we see David figuring out a lot of problems, trying to find solutions for a lot of problems. You know what we don't see in 2 Samuel chapter 11? We don't see a single time where David repents. We don't see repentance. This whole narrative that I just read to you is completely void, devoid of the repentance of a man who has broken God's law. Look at 2 Samuel eleven twenty-six. 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and he brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David done, disple- had done displeased the Lord. Why do we know there was shame involved on David's part? Because if he was really king, and he was a king like these pagans, he would have taken the wife and he would have made a public show of it. There's no need to kill Uriah the Hittite. There's no need to cover any wrongdoing because I'm the king and I deserve this. But he waited until Uriah was dead to take her on as his wife. There was shame involved. There was cloak and dagger going on. Why? Because he knew he was wrong. He knew he was wrong. He didn't make it open. He wanted to cover it up. And so he waited until Uriah was dead. And then he took Bathsheba to be his wife. James 1.15 tells us that temptation brings desire. When we are tempted, desire is created. When we allow ourselves to sit with desire long enough, then sin is the result of desire. Temptation, exposure to temptation brings a desire and a longing for that temptation, for that sin. And then when we desire it for long enough, eventually we will sin. And when we sin, once sin has fully conceived, it brings about death. This is Satan's endgame. But it displeased the Lord. While there was shame... Involved David became for this time in his life disoriented by his sin. So let's look at the disorientation of sin. Second Samuel 12, 1 through 6. At least David had somebody, whether he wanted him or not, had somebody to speak truth to into his life, right? So in walks the man Nathan, the prophet of God who had walked with David for many years and who would continue, by the way, to walk with David past his sin, the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. Oh boy, story time, right? David's grabbing his popcorn here in the story. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but the little ewe, one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And when he brought it up, it grew up with him and his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests that, he had, come, that had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Listen to this. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and because he has had no pity. It is amazing how despite the sin that we may or may not be in, how easy it is for us to emphasize the sin of others. It's amazing. I've heard someone say before, pride is the easiest thing to see in someone else and sometimes the hardest thing to see in yourself. Pride and selfishness. It's amazing how our flesh will... Exalt the sin of another and try to minimize the sin in our own life. And listen, David even uses scripture in his response to Nathan. He says that man needs to restore the poor man fourfold. What does that mean? He needs to give him four lambs. You know where that comes from? Exodus 22 verse 1. It says that anybody that steals a sheep is to restore that sheep Fourfold. He even correctly divides the law of God in the middle of his sinful state. He even knew the Bible verses. Well, let me just tell you. Boy, if I had a son or daughter that did that. Boy, if I had a co-worker that did that. Let me tell you what I would do. Let me tell you what God's word says about that. He better restore fourfold. And then he escalates it. The defense mechanism, our sinful defense mechanism, is called transference. Any guilt or shame that he is feeling, which we know he does that according to Psalm 32, it says that his bones were melting away as he was silent before God about his sin. All of that became put on this man who had killed this poor man's lamb. And now not only should he restore fourfold, this man deserves to die. It is amazing how in our flesh, our sin is minimized and the sin of others is maximized. It's almost as if our insecurity for our shortcomings and our failures serve to transfer to someone else and if we can make their sin look bad enough if we can make their sin look terrible enough then somehow some way it makes us feel better about our own sin this is what we see but look at verse 7 plot twist Nathan says what we know he says right all of us know what he's about to say don't we We all know it. Why? Because the pastor wouldn't preach a message if it wasn't about this, right? You are the man. You're all ticked off about this guy who has stolen a lamb from this poor man. And you have stolen this man's wife, dummy. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you, David king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah and if this were too little if this wasn't enough for you I would add to you much much more just as much as I had added initially I would have given you again so why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites You're the man David the sin that you sought to hide has now been revealed I know what you did. You're the man. This is what God has told me to deliver to you. We are reflecting our human nature when we minimize our sin and we maximize the sin and the punishment of others. Isn't that what he did? I mean, David, with plenty of sin in his life at that time, decided and ruled that that man deserved to die. He's not just giving him right judgment, he is escalating the judgment. He is maximizing the condemnation on this man. Right Now, he's got plenty of sin to deal with, but now he is accusing this man of doing something so horribly wrong that he deserves to die. It is human nature to minimize our sin and to maximize the sin of others. It's why some of us get on Facebook and we berate people of this world that believe things that are contrary to God's word. We feel the need to condemn people who don't believe God's word when they don't have a relationship with him. Let me tell you something. The church shouldn't be known for the things that it condemns. When we do that, we are reflecting. We are reflecting not our spiritual nature. We are reflecting our sinful, prideful nature. Does that mean that we tell the world that what they're doing is right? Absolutely not. But you're not going to change anybody's mind. Your job, your job is not to convict somebody of sin. That ain't your job. Your job isn't to make someone convicted about whether they're a male or female in their mind. That's not your job. Your job is to understand who you are in light of a perfect Savior. And y'all, we are all hopelessly broken. We are not in a lessened state. We are not better than anyone else. Although our Facebook profiles may say otherwise, we are not better than anyone else. We are just as sinful. And if it weren't for the activity of God in our life, so too would we be. We have lost perspective on who we were are we are reflecting our human nature when we minimize our sins and we maximize the sin and the punishment of others however a godly nature maximizes the gravity of our own sin it brings to light our own shortcomings it glorifies our own weakness And it shows us just how much we need Jesus. And when we recognize just how much we need Jesus, all of a sudden, grace. Patience and forgiveness become the result of that life. So when we maximize our own sin in light of the perfect standard of Jesus, we understand what he saved us from and what is reserved then for the world is not condemnation, is not trying to make them convicted for their own sin. What we are left with is forgiveness, love, grace, mercy, and reconciliation. We can win the world... When we understand who we really are outside of Jesus. This is what we see. He maximized, made much of the sin of another to make his own sin feel bad, feel better. This is why mercy and grace and forgiveness are key characteristics to the followers of Christ. You will not reach someone in this world unless you are willing to love that person. Unless you're willing to see them not as your enemy, but to see them as the prize that Jesus died for. And you don't see them as that until you see yourself as that. David was so busy trying to protect his reputation. He was turning to the right, he was turning to the left, he was posturing himself in all the right ways to make himself look like a great king. But what we don't see is repentance. What is sadly lacking is looking up. Looking up to a God who would provide direction and a path forward. It's kind of like this. When we first got to the village, I decided that we needed to get a UTV. We needed to get a side-by-side that we could ride around the village on. That was before someone told me that apparently we're not allowed to ride on the horse trails with a UTV. Um, I didn't know that, and so I rode anyway. I won't tell you that I will never ride on it, because that would be a lie. Uh, I probably will. But right now, it's been in the shop for over a year. So there's that. Maybe my sinful heart will repent. Maybe I'll get my vehicle back. But I remember when we first got the vehicle. That was a a rabbit trail you didn't need to hear. Um, I get my vehicle, and I decide, like, it's time for me to show my kids a good time. So I load my boys up, and we decide to hit the trails at the village. Now, what I did not know about the village is that it does not have a horse trail. It has a giant myriad of horse trails. And there are reflectors that probably mean a lot to some people, but they don't mean nothing to a guy that just got here. I'm Johnny-come-lately to this thing, and I start going, and I go straight in places, and I turn right in places, and I turn left in places. And before long, I realize, holy, I have no idea where and then my kids start asking questions like, hey daddy, where are we? Elmont, buddy. <laughs> I haven't seen any signs like Daddy, are we are we lost? <laughs> no. No, no, man. We're not lost. Like, Daddy can get us back. Like. And then I start taking right turn and left turn. And I get worse and worse and worse. And, y'all, I get to the point where I'm on the top of a mountain overlooking a a cornfield. And you may know exactly what trail I'm on. I didn't. And it took me three hours to get back home. Only because I finally had the sense enough to grab my phone, watch myself, my little arrow. Like, okay, I think I'm going toward the village. Okay, I'm not going toward the village anymore. I need to turn around. Like, it took me three hours to get back. Finally, because I decided to look up. I finally decided to get an aerial view. And I realized where I could truly make progress. And in our life, we are that way. We can make all the turns that we feel like we should make to make us feel better, to advance ourselves. But repentance, the most progress I could have made would have been to turn around and go the other way. Just go back. But no, I had to prove something to my sons. For us in our walk with the Lord, the greatest progress we will ever make toward the Lord is to turn back from our sin. To repent. To turn the other direction. And we don't see it in the life of David. And he spends all of his time desensitizing, disorienting himself with his own sin until he finally Comes to the place that God would have him to be. God, through Nathan, would communicate a message, and we finally see number three direction out of sin. Let's look at the direction out of sin. Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, it's important for us to note. This is before Nathan starts reading off all of the consequences for David's actions. By the way, David experiences some pretty significant consequences. For what he did for his sin, his sin merited from a holy God judgment consequences for his sin. Before those are levied, though, David dons the posture of repentance. Now, we read that and go, he just sinned for a whole chapter. All he can say is, I have sinned against the Lord. That's not all he says. This is a narrative. This is a story that they're telling. To understand the heart of David, we need to go to Psalm 51. Turning your Bibles to Psalm 51, what we have is a record From David, in fact, many of you in your Bible, especially if it's a study Bible, it says, and uh, before you get into the scripture, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in with Bathsheba. So after this had happened, after he had sinned, after he was confronted, we have in 2 Samuel him saying that he has sinned against the Lord. But we don't see the full picture of his repentance until we read Psalm 51. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me. From my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What he is saying is, God, I have sinned against you. Now, I think Uriah and maybe even Bathsheba would argue that. His sin affected more than just God. It affected Bathsheba and Uriah. And that doesn't minimize the fact that we need to get things right with people when our sin affects them. However, what we need to understand is what I get people to understand when I talk to people about salvation and share Christ with them. What I want them to understand is our sin isn't just bad stuff that we do. Our sin is against God. God has a standard. God has a a bar that we are to keep. When he is Lord of our lives, right? We will not fall into sin. It's when we place ourselves on the throne of our life, is when we fall short of God's standard. Our sin is against God, not man. In light, as, as much of an impact as David had on Uriah's life, David is looking at the impact that is between he and God. And he's saying it's not even worth comparing to the strife and the turmoil and the disconnect that I have with God. It's not even worth comparing. Even taking a a man's physical life, he is serious about what his sin had done to his relationship with God. Now, he, he makes amends with people, but ultimately, his sin is against God. He recognizes it, and he gets right with God. To the extent that God, whatever you decide to punish me with, you are just and blameless in your judgment. That's what he tells them. You can do whatever you need to do to me, You are just and you are right, and I am completely wrong. I don't have a say in how you choose to judge me. This is what is meant when it says in 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. But he doesn't stop there. What we see in 2 Samuel 12 that is absent from the other chapter, though it is just mentioned briefly, is we see repentance. We see a turning away. We see a desire of a king to shift from people not finding out how sinful he is to not caring who in the world finds out how sinful he is. David literally makes a psalm. He makes a song, a poem that is supposed to be read corporately in worship about his failure with Bathsheba. He doesn't try to hide it. He his mistake. He, he lifts it up. He lets everyone see what God did. Rather than hiding this thing, there's a shift that happens in David's heart. And he says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. You know what he says there? Creating me a new heart. And my failures, instead of being those things that I hide, I bring to light because it when, when people see my brokenness and how you are continuing to forgive and restore and use me, then you will receive all the glory. What does he say there? Transgressors, right? I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return from you. People will look at my life and go, this lazy, uh, selfish, uh, liar adulterer and murderer, has turned back to God and God has forgiven him, there must be hope for me too. By me not choosing to cover my sin, but choosing to share my sin, it has become part of my testimony. And my testimony will be used for sinners to return to you. Nobody is too far gone. If you need to look anywhere, look at my own life. And see that no one is too far gone. It is repentance that God is requiring for us. David was just as broken as he ever was. But God was good. David would fail again. He would despair when the consequences were his children would be in an uproar and the sword would not depart from his home. He would despair over his children. He would get prideful in his old old age and want to count how big his kingdom was. He would still sin, but the theme of his life was not David's perfection or even David's imperfection. The theme of David's life was God's goodness. Because God could use a flawed person like King David. We often want people to see us as perfect, but God desires much more that people see us as forgiven. Let me say that again. We often want people to see us as perfect, to see us as without flaw, to see us put together, but God desires much more that people see us as forgiven. As it relates to mothers, Mother's Day, but as it relates to all of us in this room, there are mothers in this room that are literally being crushed under the expectation of what it means to be a perfect mother. I've got to do the right things, I've got to say the right things, I've got to lead the right times in the Word, I've got to pray the right way, I've got to uh, discipline the right way, I've got to raise up. And if they're not exactly, the kids aren't exactly the way that they should be in school, then I failed as a mother. We are crushing ourselves under the expectations of being perfect Perfect mothers, perfect fathers Who never have any failings The point of David's life Was not perfection Do you know what's beautiful about David's life? David's life is prophetic Of a king who would come David was broken David blew it He was a man after God's heart But he blew it But David's life is prophetic Of a king who would come Down the lineage Who would be perfect Parents, can I tell you something? David wasn't perfect, but he was a man after God's heart. David's life is a signpost pointing to a king one day who would be perfect in every way. And I got news for you. Your life should be a signpost pointing back. The standard God has placed on your life as parent, as mom, as dad, as aunt, as uncle, as son, as daughter is not the standard of perfection. You couldn't do it. Jesus did it. Your job, your job is to not water, to not nurture your kids through your own perfection but to do it through your own brokenness. And so, if you're a mother in this room, we have these gifts for you. This is a planted seed. A seed in its environment that's going, that's the, the goal is for it to grow. And we know how it's going to grow, right? It's going to have to be nurtured. It's going to have to be given adequate sunlight. How much sunlight, I'm not sure. You need to ask my wife. She knows, she knows the flowers she picked out. Uh, it needs to have adequate sunlight, it needs to have adequate air, it needs to have adequate water, food to grow, nutrients. It needs to be nurtured. We don't nurture our children through being perfection. You know what the water, the refreshing water that your child needs to hear? It's not that you're the perfect parent. It's that God has made you perfect, though you blow it day after day after day. They need to hear the refreshment of the spirit of God that is in your life. Son, daughter, mama, daddy is going to fail you over and over again. We're not perfect, but we are redeemed. You don't need to see perfection from me. You need to see repentance from me. What our children need to see its not this false narrative that we try to maintain with everybody else. But we need to water them with our own repentance. And they need to see that God can use even them. Sin does not disqualify us from being men and women after God's heart. But we have got to die to ourselves. We've got to die and take the posture of a humble servant. A servant that God has done everything for and that we just respond to him. You bow your head and close your eyes. The seed that we plant in our children is dependency on Christ. Do they see that from us? Or are we like King David in 2 Samuel 11? Are we just trying to make all the right moves and hope our kids notice? Notice how righteous or spiritual of a family we are Or do we recognize when we fail Has your kid ever even heard you say you're sorry That you've fallen short, that you've broken God's law Does your child know how hopeless you are Outside of the perfection that's found in Jesus If they don't, that's what they need from you King David finally saw himself in light of a holy God. He dealt with the sin in his own life. He didn't have to worry about the sin in everyone else's. The same grace and mercy that was poured out on him, the forgiveness that was poured out on him, made available to him, was poured out on others. This is what God desires for are just pointing we don't have our act together we're just pointing to one who has fit all the pieces is that your life if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus man what better time Mother's Day to get right to call upon God it's not about cleaning yourself it's not about fixing you you can't do that but God can change you Would you depend on him? Would you cry out to him? Would you repent? Would you turn away? Would you quit trying to do everything on your your own? Would you cry out to him and receive his gift of forgiveness? Let go of all these expectations the world has on you. and care only about the one who deserves all the glory for your life. Let that be the song of your life. Goodness of God. The greatness of His forgiveness. And all things. In just a minute, we're going to sing. I'm going to pray and we'll say amen. And when I say amen, as we sing, you have the opportunity to move. This altar is going to be open. Listen, if you're here and there's things that you need to deal with, man, there's some things that you need to lay down. This altar is open. Maybe it's time to give up what people think of you. Maybe that's a great application of this message. And get right. Get things right. Promise this, you're not alone.
1: You're not alone in this
0: room. But if you're here and you need a relationship with Jesus, you're the most important person here. Cry out to Him today. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do we have that attitude of dependency? Do you need Him today? Would you respond as he leads? Father, have your will and way in our hearts and lives. Be with us in this time of response. May we respond to your goodness. May we humble ourselves. May we uh, see ourselves for who we really are. And Father, may we pursue you for what you have done for us. It truly is a gift what you have given us. May we see that now. May we respond to that. Would you stand to your feet as we sing. Would you come as the Spirit leads?